From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for Episode 79, The Friendly Isle. Lopez Island, which is roughly 75 miles northwest of Seattle, is one of hundreds of islands that make up the San Juan Island archipelago. It is estimated that at low tide, there are roughly 750 islands visible above sea level within the confines of San Juan County. Different sources provide varying numbers. During high tide, that number is reduced to approximately 430 islands, of which only 175 have formal names. Orcas Island is the largest, covering 57 square miles. San Juan Island is the second largest, covering 55 square miles. And Lopez Island, with 29.5 square miles, is considered the third largest. The islands are primarily formed of sedimentary rocks from the Paleozoic and Mesozoic periods. The islands were first exposed approximately 14,000 years ago following the end of the most recent ice age. The mountains rise from the sea floor and the diverse rock shapes that make up the archipelago define the channels and harbors that it contains. The present-day shorelines of the islands are around 5,000 years old. On a quick but relative side note, there is a glacial erratic on Whidbey Island that is said to have come from this range and is quite massive. It's called the Waterman Rock and if you can find it while hiking, it's truly impressive to see. There are actually several more of these erratics scattered around Whidbey Island, with other notable ones in Coopville and an easily accessible one located inside the confines of Fort Casey State Park near the picnic area. In accordance with current archaeological findings, humans have lived in the San Juan Islands at least since the islands were discovered following the last ice age, which is thought to have occurred approximately 14,000 years ago. For many years, the Coast Salish tribes Lummi, Samish, Sainich, and Songji lived in cedar plank longhouses during the winter months and used the warmer months for hunting, fishing, and producing and harvesting plants. Northern tribes such as the Shimshian, Haida, Klingit, and Bella were hostile and would kill, kidnap tribal members and force them into slavery, and steal items from more peaceful tribes on a regular basis. Viruses such as smallpox and other diseases progressively weakened the tribes and by the early 1900s they had a significantly diminished presence on the islands. The investigation of Native American history in the area is still ongoing. On Lopez, archaeological research was carried out by a collaboration between the Burke Museum at the University of Washington, the Federal Bureau of Land Management, and the Samish Tribe in 2004. An undamaged fireplace, which was discovered at the bottom of a Watma Bay excavation, was one of their finds. It has been suggested that the first Europeans to visit local seas were on a Spanish ship led by Apostolos Valerianos, a Greek with the Spanish name Juan de Fuca, in 1592. This account, however, may be based on more mythical evidence than any actual historical evidence. In order to uncover the fabled Northwest Passage, the expedition set off on a journey of exploration. They were unsuccessful since there was no such water passage available. When the Spanish came 200 years later, they named many of the geographical features that they discovered while surveying the area. Captain Francisco Eliza named one of the islands Lopez in honor of his pilot, Gonzalo Lopez de Hero, whom he met on the voyage. The United Kingdom and the United States each entered the area and curated their own maps and names for it. 
The earliest landings on Lopez Island occurred in 1792 when British Captain George Vancouver's ship, the Chatham, made a port call at what is now known as Point Colville and the Spanish landed at Watma Head. In 1841, the American Captain Charles Wilkes changed the name of Lopez to Chauncey's Island in honor of Isaac Chauncey, a naval hero who served during the War of 1812. However, in 1847, the British restored the name of the island back to Lopez, which has remained in use ever since, which just has a better ring to it if you ask me. The Treaty of Oregon, signed in 1846 between Britain and the United States, established limits that were universally accepted until a little dispute arose in the interpretation. The border was supposed to run through the middle of the channel on the 49th parallel, but there were really two channels at that location. The Strait of Harrow was the closest to Vancouver Island, and the Strait of Rosario was the closest to the mainland. Eventually, this ambiguous classification resulted in what has come to be known as the Pig War. For more on that fascinating turn of events in the history of the Evergreen State, check out Episode 8, which was released all the way back on the 8th of September 2021, the boundary dispute was settled and the border was established on the 21st of October 1872 and the military presence in the San Juan Islands was formally disbanded the same day. Because of all the preceding misunderstanding and tension, Lopez and the other San Juan Islands were the last area of the United States to be totally open for settlement by residents of the U.S. at the time of their establishment. Some British subjects in the area promptly sought out citizenship in the U.S., allowing them to remain and secure legal title to the land that they had occupied for quite some time up to that point. Despite the fact that legal settlement did not commence until the border resolution in 1872, a small number of whites had already arrived on Lopez Island at the time. One of these was William Paddle, a British subject who landed in the United States in 1852. The British government granted him the first territorial land license in the territory of Lopez after he launched a logging operation on the island's southwest coast as an employee of Hudson's Bay Company. When Paddle had finished building a few structures, he relocated to Bellingham, where he became successful in the coal mining industry. His Lopez site was taken over by an American named William W. Cussons. Cussons, on the other hand, was adamant about not passing his logs through Canadian customs, which exacerbated tensions between the two countries. Lopez Island was the site of an attempt by the Hudson's Bay Company to make land grants to British subjects, but there was little interest because most did not want to be so far away from existing communities. Hiram E. Hutchinson arrived on Lopez Island in approximately 1850 when he was 19 or 20 years old and established himself as the island's first permanent non-native settler. Upon his arrival, a battle between Coast Salish natives and a raiding group of Haida from the north was raging, and he used his gun to assist the Coast Salish in defending their territory. He was then invited to spend the night in their village, Solkselect, which was located near Fisherman Bay. He married Mary, a Klingit lady, in a traditional ceremony in 1867, and the couple had a son, Millard, the following year. During this time period, Hutch was appointed postmaster and storekeeper for the island, and he was based at Fisherman's Bay. When Hutch's sister Irene moved to Lopez with her family in 1873, she lent a hand in the store. Hutch died around 1880 or 1881 depending on the source. In 1862, the Homestead Act made it possible for anyone to own land in the United States and drew in settlers who were interested in starting a new life on land that they were able to acquire as a result of their participation. Whatcom County included the islands when Washington became an official United States territory in 1853 and the islands were thereafter regarded to be part of Washington. San Juan County was founded in the autumn of 1873 as a result of the desire of the locals to have their own county as they were sick and tired of having to travel so far to conduct their business with the county. 
Despite the fact that the county seat was located on San Juan Island, Lopez residents were permitted to participate in a variety of governmental functions. Lopez was also home to a British sailor by the name of Billy Barlow, who abandoned ship and married Lucy, an Alaskan native lady with whom he would have nine children over the years. Billy Barlow was one of the island's earliest residents. In the steady settlement on Lopez Island, Lucy Barlow was the first female member to join the small but growing number on Lopez. Non-native male settlers that came to Lopez either lived with or married native women, and descendants of these families still reside on the island to this very day. James and Amelia Davis and their children were the first non-native family to settle on Lopez. The Davis family was involved in the community and provided social and cultural opportunities for their fellow islanders. James and Amelia enjoyed music and literature, according to Susan Lane Ferguson in Images of Lopez Island, and their home acted as a Sunday school, library, hotel, and a medical pharmacy for the island's residents. Prospectors returning from various gold rushes and traveling through the islands, relatives and friends of residents, respondents to advertisements, and those wishing for a better life were all among those who came to Lopez Island. Lopez received a lot of positive press from writers who extolled the island's qualities. The island would be described by Honor L. Wilhelm in the 1901 supplement to the San Juan Islander as follows. The valleys of this island encompass acre after acre of the most fertile soil under the sun, and they captivate and delight the eye with their gorgeous fields and well-kept appealing orchards. On Lopez, no one, stranger or friend, is ever turned away when looking for food or shelter, and of all the islands, the people who live on this island appear to be the most rich and well-off of them all. Lopez is home to some of the most luxurious and expansive mansions and residences in the county. Religions and educational facilities are among the greatest in the world in this country. In addition to agriculture and fruit production, the best salmon fishing in the state can be found along the island's borders. As more people moved to the island, three major settlements grew, Port Stanley, Richardson, and Lopez Village. Port Stanley was the largest of these communities. All of these settlements had steamer service, a store, and a post office, among other amenities. A post office and a school were also located in a smaller locality known as Mud Bay. Port Stanley was a settlement on the island's northernmost point. The town had three successive school buildings in use over the years from 1876 to 1941 when all of the schools on the island merged into a single institution. Before 1914, Port Stanley was served by a store that was owned and operated by a group of local residents. Frank Kilpatrick purchased the store and built a pier on the property. In addition, his family owned and maintained an inn and restaurant. The Puget Sound Potash and Kelp Fertilizer Company, which was established in Port Stanley in 1913 and produced gunpowder, fertilizer, and iodine until it was forced to close shortly after the First World War. The hamlet of Richardson was located on the island's southernmost tip. Around 1870, George Stillman Richardson and his family arrived at Lopez Island and settled in the area between Jones Bay and Davis Bay. Richardson only stayed for a brief period of time before selling his farm. In the end, it was purchased by William Graham, who saw the tremendous potential in the area, which by that time contained roads, the southernmost deepwater port in the county, and big seasonal salmon runs nearby. The Richardson area flourished at a remarkable pace under Graham's leadership. N.P. Hodgson arrived on the island in 1878 and began working alongside Graham. When a community hall was constructed in 1897, the town's various amenities included everything from a general store to a barber shop. Richardson grew into a significant trading center for fish and farm products and at one point was supplied by two daily steamers. With five fish traps, three canneries, and an estimated 5,000 summer residents, Richardson fishing had reached its zenith by 1913. 
However, after that, Richardson's fortunes began to dwindle. In that same year, a mudslide blocked a stretch of the Fraser River in British Columbia, which had a negative impact on the salmon run in the area. In addition to a fire and an explosion, the prohibition of fish traps in 1934, as well as the Great Depression, were among the reasons that contributed to the slow collapse of Richardson's fishing operation. After a fire ravaged the only surviving store in October of 1990, Richardson was no longer in business. Lopez Village would be founded by Hiram Hutchinson, who opened the first business there. The community continued to flourish, thanks in part to the efforts of C.T. Butler, who arrived in Lopez in 1891 and by 1901 had a large number of businesses. By 1953, all of the island's post offices had been consolidated into one location in Lopez Village. Lopez Village is currently the only settlement on the island. Lopez Island developed as a farming island as a result of its moderate climate, relatively flat geography, and abundantly fertile soil. By the late 1800s, the island had surpassed the other San Juan Islands as the leading producer of agricultural products. People raised sheep and cattle, as well as cultivated grains, fruits, and vegetables. Besides supplying food for their own households, farmers exported apples, cherries, plums, prunes, and strawberries to city markets, where they received high prices throughout the early 20th century. By 1930, there were a total of 134 farms scattered over the island. Lopez was the site of the first threshing machine in the county, which was brought in by John Bartlett. A group of farmers would move from one farm to another, working cooperatively to harvest the grain. Dairy farms were also profitable, and Lopez Island eventually had its own creamery, which opened its doors in 1906. Lopez, which is surrounded by salmon-filled waters, relied heavily on the fishing sector for a significant portion of its income. In his book, Magic Islands, author David Richardson states that around the turn of the century there were, in an average season, 40 or 50 outfits, employing more than 400 men, filled the entire bay off the southern coast of Lopez with every conceivable type of craft and took a million to a million and a half fish from the sea. Because it was the first port of call for steamers arriving from Seattle during the season, the hamlet of Richardson was the busiest port on the San Juan Islands during the fishing season. Salmon collected by purse saners, gill netters, reef nets, a method that had been employed by local tribes for hundreds of years, and fish traps were processed at the canneries in Richardson. Approximately 400 employees could be employed at the canneries in Richardson at any given time. Chinese and women were among those who regularly found employment in the processors. The workers would spend their time during the off-season fixing equipment and preparing for the following season's work. Fishing and farming were the economic backbone of the community, but as the population grew, occupations such as woodcutting, telephone operating, boat building, teaching, storekeeping, postman, and kelp fertilizer plant worker all began to appear on census forms. A number of regional and national changes have had an impact on the Lopez economy. After the mudslide on the Fraser River impacted salmon runs, the irrigation in eastern Washington grew exponentially and pushed out a lot of Lopez Island farmers. Because of this, as well as improved road service on the mainland, the market for Lopez fruits and vegetables supplied by steamers had shrunk. Lopez Island, like the rest of the country, was impacted greatly by the Great Depression in the 1930s. Lifestyles changed and the population shrank as a result of this. As the 1960s and 70s progressed, things began to slowly shift once more. For a brief period, salmon fishing was reinvigorated, tourism flourished, and urbanites began seeking a different way of life and relocated to the island. Some people purchased the historic homesteads and restored them to their former glory. Others constructed second homes for use as holiday or retirement residences. 
Others were motivated to pursue an agricultural lifestyle by the return to the land movement that began in the 1970s. Lopez received its first local phone service back in 1908 when subscribers assembled their own poles and lines and purchased their own telephones. Al Douglas founded the Long Distance Telephone Company in 1916, which expanded the range of telephone alternatives available. Opalco, the Orca's Power and Light Cooperative, was established on Orca's Island in 1937 with the goal of bringing electricity to the San Juan Islands. Lopez received electricity on the 1st of January 1942 when a diesel-powered power plant was erected. When a major submarine cable from Anacortes was installed, it was a huge step forward for the entire region. On the 22nd of July 1951, a dedication ceremony was held in which around 700 individuals were in attendance. Opalco is committed to keeping its systems up to date and upgrading them when new technology and resources as they become available. For many years, traveling around the island by boat was preferable to traveling by road. Lopez Island was connected to the mainland by steamer ships known as the Mosquito Fleet, which provided service to the island for many years. Sam Barlow, the son of one of the original Lopez settlers, Billy Barlow, was a well-regarded captain of these ships. After the Mosquito Fleet, the Puget Sound Navigation Line, also known as the Black Ball Ferry Line, was established in the 1920s to provide vehicle ferry service to the Lopez Ferry Port at Upright Head. The line was purchased by the Washington State Ferry System in 1951 and is still in operation today, still serving the community. Island Sky Ferries, founded by Roy Franklin and Bob Schoen in 1947, was the first scheduled air transportation provider on the island. The Lopez Port District was established on the 5th of November 1968 with the signing of the Lopez Port Act. Early Lopez Island people took part in a variety of recreational activities, including baseball, a community band, picnics, quilting bees, and involvement in charitable organizations. General stores were frequently used as both commercial and social gathering places. Artists have long been drawn to the island's natural beauty as an inspiration. James Fitzgerald and Margaret Tompkins, two highly regarded Northwest artists who lived on Lopez in 1948, built a residence on the island for themselves and their families. After Fitzgerald's death in 1973, Tompkins made the decision to permanently relocate to Lopez. At one time in her early life, she revealed in her oral history interview for the Smithsonian Institution's Archives of American Art when she was able to swap fish for art. I'd do watercolors of the purse saners and then row out and they'd throw me some fish and I'd give them the painting. The annual Artist Studio trip now draws more than 44 island artists. Their design can be found at a number of island businesses. Lopez places a high priority on the arts, which include music and theater. Religion has also been a large component of island life for a long time. The dedication of Center Church took place on the 4th of August, 1889. An arrangement between Methodists and Congregationalists allowed them to share the building, setting a precedent that is still in effect today. The Grace Methodist Church, which was built in 1954, is also still in operation. Jennifer Thompson was the first official school teacher on Lopez Island, having been recruited in 1872. The modest schools in Mud Bay, Port Stanley, and Lopez Village were all erected at that time and were repaired as needed over the course of several decades. In 1941, the district was combined into a single school which was located on Center Road. This historic building, which first opened its doors on the 20th of May, 1895, has been renovated and, after serving a variety of other purposes, was designated as the Lopez Library in March of 1977. 
The last Port Stanley school building has also been renovated and presented to the Historical Museum, which will be used for community events in the future. The historic Center School building has since been converted into the Grange Hall. John Anderson, a murder victim, was buried in the Lopez Union Cemetery as the cemetery's first inhabitant. John Kay, Anderson's next-door neighbor, fatally shot him in May of 1882 after a cow belonging to Anderson wandered onto Kay's land. In response to Anderson's attempt to retrieve it, Kay shot him in the leg, and he later died. Among the most infamous crimes committed on Lopez Island in recent years was the murder of Ruth Neslin's husband, Rolf, on the 8th of August, 1980, which became widely publicized. She was found guilty of shooting him and then setting his body on fire. A body was never located in this case, which made it one of the more unusual convictions in the U.S. Ruth Nesland, who was 73 at the time of her death, died in prison on the 17th of February, 1993. On San Juan Island in 1935, Frank Henderson founded the San Juan International Camp. The idea was to bring boys from both Canada and the United States together for a camp-like experience that would be similar to that of a Boy Scout camp in both countries. Henderson and his wife Lucille expanded the camp's appeal by making it available to female campers in 1938. In 1946, they purchased 320 acres on Sperry Peninsula on Lopez Island and relocated the camp, which was renamed to Camp Henderson. When they sold the property in 1967, the new owners renamed it Camp Norwester. When the land had to be sold due to financial difficulties, campers from all eras were saddened. Camp Norwester, located on Johns Island near San Juan Island, was reopened in 2000. Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft and philanthropist, acquired ownership of the Sperry Peninsula property. Lopez had a population of 70 people when the federal census was taken in 1870. After it became legal for citizens of the U.S. to legally acquire land there in 1880, the number of people increased to 180. There was an increase in population with each subsequent census until 1930 when the numbers showed a decrease, with numbers dropping from 750 in the 1920 count to 575 in the 1930. In the early days, the majority of the residents were farmers or fishermen, but as the population grew, new occupations emerged. Lopez Island had a population of 2,383 people at the time of the 2010 census, with the largest demographic group being those between the ages of 60 and 64. There were 2,410 dwelling units counted in the census, with about equal proportions of year-round and seasonal occupants. Lopez Island maintains its reputation as a welcoming and pastoral community, just as it did in the past, and the local governments is handled by elected San Juan County authorities and their agents. The county seat is located in Friday Harbor on the island of San Juan. There are many Lopez citizens who are involved in civic and community affairs, and the spirit of collaboration has resulted in land use planning, affordable housing projects, the maintenance of community buildings, fundraisers, and assistance to neighbors in need. Celebrations and festivals are woven into the very fabric of island life. Lopez can also be reached by private boat or plane, in addition to the ferries that run regularly. Boating, hiking, golfing, beachcombing, tennis, biking, which is highly popular due to the relatively flat terrain, whale and wildlife watching, and other outdoor activities are all readily available in the area. A summer farmer's market, a 4th of July celebration, the Tour de Lopez bicycle ride, a winter festival, and tours of homes and artist studios are among the major attractions throughout the year. The Islandale Store, located on the island's southernmost tip, is a one-of-a-kind establishment. 
The island has a range of shops that specialize in local arts and crafts, as well as restaurants, many of which serve food that is grown or raised on the island, the Lopez Island Vineyards and Winery, and numerous types of accommodations, including camping, resorts, B&Bs, and rental houses. The area is a hive of economic activity with grocery stores, a post office, a bank, pharmacy, thrift stores, boutiques, and bakeries are all conveniently accessible in Lopez Village, which is located on Fisherman Bay. There are eight county parks and one state park, Spencer Spit, on the island that are open to the public and a vibrant community center that serves as a venue for a wide variety of events. This is also true for the Lopez Library, the Lopez Family Resource Center, the Lopez Island Historical Museum, Woodmen Hall, and the several churches in the community. Lopez even has its own radio station, KLOI, which broadcasts locally. Despite the fact that locals continue to farm and fish, they do so on a much smaller scale than in the past. Residents of the island now make a living through a variety of occupations including tourism, construction, arts and crafts, small businesses, telecommuting, and working for schools or other community organizations. Lopez Island is still known for its friendliness and is very worth a visit today. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow and to expand to a new audience, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include Magic Islands by David Richardson, The Seattle Times, HistoryLink.org, San Juan Islands by Don Pitcher, LopezRocks.org, Opalco.com, the National Park Service website, VisitSanJuans.com, Making History, The People Who Shaped the San Juan Islands by Lucille McDonald, and the Lopez Island Historical Society and Museum. Thank you for listening to episode 79, The Friendly Isle. Episode 80 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hoe. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stilicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck and Moclips and Copalis where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.